Let's uh, bow before we start reading the scripture. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity we have to worship you, to listen to your word, and to learn from you. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're continuing with Noah and his family in the ark floating on the water. In verse eight, uh, chapter 8, verse 1. And God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the cattle that was with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters assuaged. The fountains also of the deep and the windows of heaven were stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained. And the waters returned from off the earth continually. And after the end of 150 days, the waters were abated. And the ark rested in the seventh month on the seventh day, uh, 17th day of the month upon the mountains of Ararat. And the waters decreased continually until the 10th month. And in the 10th month, on the first day of the month, were the tops of the mountains seen. And it came to pass that... At the end of 40 days, that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made, and he sent forth a raven which went forth to and fro until the waters were dried up from off the earth. And he sent forth, also he sent forth a dove with him and to see if the waters were abated from off the face of the ground. But the dove found no rest for her, the sole of her foot, and she returned unto him in, into the ark, for the waters were on the face of the earth, whole earth. Then he put forth his hand and took her and pulled her in unto him into the ark. And he stayed yet another seven days and sent out another dove from out of the ark. And the dove came back in the evening, and lo, in her mouth was an olive leaf plucked off. So Noah knew that the waters were abated from the earth. And he stayed yet another seven days and sent forth a dove, which returned not again unto him any more. And it came to pass in the 601st year, the first month of the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from all the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark, and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the seventh day of the twentieth day of the month, was the earth dried. So we're looking up here, and we see lots and lots of detail in this story. It tells us exact days, and we're going to talk next week about how important these days are, but we're going to look at another reason these days are important. There are literally hundreds of flood stories around the world. All right? Literally. Which, you know, scientists and sociologists have tried to figure out why there are so many flood stories around the world, and they won't accept the fact that there was a major worldwide flood that caused these stories to be everywhere. The obvious answer they rule out because it's what the Bible says, and they can't agree with the Bible. Now, the problem with most of these stories are is that they're not full of good facts. This story in the, New Te on the New Te Old Testament in Genesis tells us how big the boat was, how when, and when exactly he went in, how long they were in the ark. It gave us that they pro provided provisions. Some of, the some of these flood stories have, the Polynesians have a story where they all get into a canoe and put a bunch of animals into a canoe and float around for a long time until the flood falls away. Now, it is obviously something that is not true. All right, so we have these flood stories that have the basis of the truth in them, but they don't have the detail. Why is the detail important? Well, next week we'll go really into it, but God gives us detail for one big reason. He wants us to prove that these are not fables. These are not made up. If you make up a story for your children and it starts once upon a time, you do not give and when the prince was exactly so, so old, he went out and he did his adventure and he met this princess was, who was this old and it took him five, five months to do this. You know, we don't put those kind of stories. We just tell a story. 
and the details in this are significant. It rained 40 days and 40 nights. The waters kept rising for 150 days. They stayed on the earth for another 150 days as they, before they started pulling back. You know, these are very specific periods of time. And God is making a point with us. He is a God of order, a God of details. And I have shared this many times. God is not afraid of us questioning him. He is not afraid of us coming up and saying, why, how come, for what reason? You know, and his Bible will give us answers. The Bible matches up to true science. The Bible matches up to true sociology and true psychology. It doesn't match up to their false stuff. But when it is true, it'll agree with the Bible. You know, one of the things that has amazed me over the years is you'll hear some report coming out, and this sociological group spent five years studying this and a million dollars, and they come out with, if it's a good conclusion, what matches the Bible. <laughs> and it's like, boy, I could have told you that without spending millions of dollars <laughs> because the Bible says so. You know, and we look at this. We can put our life on what the Bible says because it is true. It will always be true. Even when everybody else in the world is telling us that it doesn't make sense, we need to stand on the Bible. In the 1800s, when evolution started being proposed in a very strong way, the scholars of that day came up with a lot of stupid ideas to try to match the Bible with the so-called science. You know, they started coming up with day age, you know, well, maybe each day was a thousand years, so it still didn't match the millions of years needed for evolution, but at least they got 7,000 years in there instead of, instead of three day, uh, seven days. And they started making all kinds of problems, and they looked at these things. We, we look at this, and people now have brought in kind of languages that make us wonder about things. You know, um, you know, I used to love nature shows, and I can't watch nature shows anymore because they're all talking about hundreds of uh, millions of years or at least hundreds of thousands of years it took this to become such and such. You know, well, we know that if you're, if you're a dog breeder, you can take a wolf and you can breed a chihuahua, you know, in just a few generations of the chihuahua, you know, if you pick uh, the smallest dogs and the, and the, the you know, things you're looking for. It's not hard to do if you're purposing to do it. You know, and God has this plan for us, and he says, this boat that was created, which was very long, but very wide, very seaworthy in the test that they put models of this under, it's very hard to capsize any vessel with the dimensions of the ark. And we look at it and say, wow, how did Noah know all that? Because God told him to do it. <laughs> God knew that he needed an ocean-going vessel that was going to be able to ride out a major storm as the geysers are pushing up and the rain's coming down constantly. He needed a vessel that could, you know, was it a very straight, sleek ship? No, because it didn't have any place to go. The ark had no place to go. Remember this, all it had is one job. That was to protect the people and the animals in it. It floated, it floated wherever God sent it to, and it had no, they didn't have sails, they didn't have oars, they weren't trying to get to any destination. They were just being protected. And they floated up, and then they floated back down with the water. And, you know, 
one of the great things about that is that God was in complete control. Noah was not in control of that boat. He did not shut the door. God shut the door. He did not go out and gather the animals. God brought him the animals. Now, he did have to build the boat, and he had to store the food in the boat for all the animals. So his part was there. He had things to do, and we talked a lot about that, that we have things to do in God's plan. But it is still God's plan. He does most of the work. We just do whatever he tells us to do. And they floated around. You know, can, can you imagine floating on a floating zoo for a year? That's what all these numbers add, add up to be. They're going to be in the ark for one year and ten days. Now, for two months, the door's open. They can see out. They can see out. But they're not ready. God didn't tell them to go out. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But after, after they've been floating around, it took God five months to draw the water off. And then it says the ark came to ground. All of a sudden, it stopped. I don't know how many of you have ever been out on boating. One of the worst things you can do when you're boating is ground the boat. <laughs> it, there's a jar on, involved on it. Now, this boat, you know, the ark wasn't moving fast, so it, it didn't, it, but it hit bottom. And it's now staying fast. And it's stuck. <laughs> and Noah's going, okay, things are, things are changed. Because remember, he knows that the, God had revealed to him that the, the water of the world is covered at the highest mountain by 22 and a half feet. Okay, so he knows that they're floating above everything, and all of a sudden, the ark is grounded. Now, the water hasn't gone away yet. They're still mostly floating, but they are aground. And this happened in the seventh month of them floating around. And Noah waits another 40 days after they've grounded, and he sends out a raven. Now, a raven is an unclean bird, and if we, know, we all know that. A raven are scavengers. He sends out the raven, you know, and it says the raven just flies to and fro. It says it doesn't, it doesn't even tell us that it came back. You know, if it came back, it stayed on the deck of the ship. It didn't come back to Noah. He sends out a dove also, and the dove flies around and comes back. Comes back to him. And Noah reaches out and brings in the dove. And there's a beautiful picture in that for us. God oftentimes asks us to do something, and even if we do not accomplish what he has asked us to do, he will welcome us back. Just as Noah welcomed back that dove. That dove did not get the job done that he had hoped for. Now, the dove didn't have anything to find, but the dove just flew around. Now, how much water is there, we don't know, because this tells us that the mountaintops are being seen. The water is flowing back fast. And a lot of times, if you talk to people about the, Noah, the flood of Noah, they'll go, well, where's all the water? Right here on the earth. <laughs> you know, it's still here. Uh, we have the Marianas Trench that is over a mile deep, and we have an Al Atlantic Trench that is over a mile deep. If those were just to be pushed up, we'd have water covering most of the world. And there's frozen ice caps on both ends. You know, the water is still here from the flood. Before the flood, there probably weren't as tall of mountains. It, we do believe that there was a Pangaea effect, one large continent. No, Noah would not have had to gone far to, for, the an, for the animals to get to him because we believe there was one continent. 
That makes sense to us. And God broke up, started plate tectonics as we now know them, and the continent started moving. And then he just kept them moving and kept the, the trenches down, and he dumped the water in there. You know, we have this beautiful canyon just a couple of miles from us. <laughs> You know, that if you listen to geologists, they will try to tell us that that little tiny river at the bottom of the canyon dumped all the water, all the canyon rock in San Diego area over millions of years. Well, you know what? It doesn't make any sense when you really look at the formations and everything of the canyon. It moved quickly. Why? God raised up the canyon and the water flowed through very... Uh, soft sandstone and it took a lot of it with it down to California you know and it makes more sense to see it from the perspective of God's word than it does to say wow that little tiny river boy that was must have been powerful at one time to drag all that rock all that way and you know this is the thing that you hear from our geologists our scientists of today's they have one magic word that they want to tell you millions and millions of years ago something happened why because that's their once upon a time in a land far far away this story happened and because they need millions of years for things to happen they will say millions of years ago do we realize that life could not spontaneously generate? This is important for us to understand. Science tells us that life does not spontaneously generate. And if you're an evolutionist, you have to violate that law of science at least once. You will believe that law of science is absolutely true unless you're an evolutionist and you'll go evolutionists say, well, once millions of years ago, something automatically just spontaneously jumped into existence. Or, as happened in my biology class when I was in, in it, and I think I've mentioned this to you, I had a professor telling us all about how aliens came to this world and planted life on this world, so that it planted seeds of life on this world so that it could evolve into whatever it evolved into. I was waiting for him to get to the punchline of the joke, and it was at the end of the class that I realized that he actually believed that foolishness. You know, what's wrong with that is all they're doing is pushing off evolution someplace else. Someplace, someplace, and this idea is someplace in this universe, there is a place where life spontaneously generates and can start. We don't know where it is. We don't know how it is or where we can find it. But someplace in this universe, there's someplace where life can spontaneously generate. Well, how can you argue that idea? You know, uh, other than the fact that our science doesn't match other places. Science isn't universal, and we can't, we can't automa automatically demand that. So their idea now is because we know that it can't happen on Earth, it happened someplace else, and it came to Earth. You know, and it's, it's sad to find out how crazy they will go to not agree with God. God says he created it all. He took dust. He breathed life into man. He took a rib from Adam, and he made a woman. And from that point on, he says, okay, repopulate. The rest of the animals, he just spoke into existence. Man is special. God specially created us. He didn't just speak man into existence. And then he breathed life into man. What a beautiful God that we have who has details. When we look at the flood, we look and say, this answers a lot of our problems, questions out there. 
Where did the Grand Canyon come from? Where did this happen? Where did that happen? The flood caused great climactic changes which caused the great ice age that froze everything instantly in many cases. And that cl climatologists have shown how that would all happen without the tropical, uh, without the uh, polar ice caps. You know, the facts are out there when people look at truth. When they don't look at truth, it gets to be very funny. It would be funny if it wasn't so serious. We see here Noah sending out this bird. It flies around. He accepts it, and it says, I accept you back, even though you didn't do your job. He waits another seven days, and he sends out a dove. The dove spends the day away and comes back with an olive leaf in its beak. Now, you know, I had to do some research on this because I've always been bugged by the fact that the, the dove found an olive leaf. I never really understood it. But you got to remember, they have been stranded on this, been grounded now for 40 days, almost uh, 60 days. And he sends out this bird. Do you, so I did some research on how long it takes for an olive seed to germinate. It only takes 10 days for it to germinate. And olive trees in the first year will grow two feet. In the first five years, they grow approximately two feet every year. So in three quarters of, a, of, a, of, of the year, or two, uh, one, one quarter of the year, that tree could have gone up as much as six inches. What does this prove to us? That the land was already starting to grow back. Have you ever been near some place that has had the fire that's burned out and seen how fast the grass and the, and the stuff starts growing back? You know, granted, the trees aren't very big that are growing back, but they're growing back after just a couple of weeks or even months. This was a sign to Noah that the world was returning back to some kind of normal. You know, if he had stepped out of the boat the first moment that it had grounded, he would have stepped out into mud. If you've ever seen some place that has been flooded, especially by a big flood, there's a whole bunch of mud and silt all over the place. If they had come out of the boat when they first came aground, they would have stepped into mud. You don't grow things in mud. You don't walk around in mud very well. God had him wait until the earth had come back to semblance of order. Grass is growing. Trees are growing. He's going to step into a world not quite like he knows it, but things will be growing. Well, people go, well, where did all those seeds come from? Well, it's interesting. The science has done a lot of uh, studies on can seeds float around and still be viable after they've been soaked in water for a long period of time? And the answer is yes. They grow all the time. There could have been great big log jams and seeds and everything in those log jams floating around, and now they're on the ground, and they're going to grow. There's all kinds of ways that this, these seeds got planted around the world. It could have been supernatural, but we can look at logical ways that all of this stuff happened. But Noah's getting ready to step off into a world that is somewhat back in order. Grass is growing. Why is it important for the grass to be growing? He's going to let animals out of this ark that they've been feeding for a year. They need grass for these, things, these animals to grow and, and go move, up, move around the, the world. 
So there needs to be something for them to be fed. So the idea that things are growing is important to us because it shows that God cares about details. And, you know, I think about this. How big is your God? Does he care about you? And the answer should be, yes, he cares. But, you know, in practice, most of us don't treat God as if he cares about us. God, I can go, I can take care of myself. I don't need you. You know, and our prayers are usually something simple, you know, that, you know, uh, we could really almost take care of ourselves. But God wants to bless us. He puts the details in place. The more science studies biology, the more they study the inter actions of each of the pieces of, of nature, the more they realize how detailed God's thought processes were in this. And I don't know if you've ever thought about it, because I did a study one time on, in school about cellular biology. And you know, there is not a piece of the cell that could be non-existent and still have a cell. None of it. It could not have just all happened by accident. You know, and we look at all of nature. All of nature has this same process. You have to have grass for certain animals to eat so that they can be eaten by other animals that don't eat the grass. You know, where did all of that come from? It did not just happen. And this is the important thing. We cannot just look at this world and say, wow, this, this whole thing just happened. We could not have our solar systems without everything happening at the same time and bringing everything together and having the right pull and the right, right uh, gravitational pull and everything without all the pieces being there at the same time. We could not live without all of this. The atom itself does not exist without God holding it together. Because we've looked at that. The atom itself does not, cannot, by, by the laws of science, hold together. And what do they tell us holds the, the nucleus of the cell together? Nuclear force. You ask them, well, what is that? They go, they don't, they don't know yet. God tells us he holds everything together. Uh, I asked my cousin about it one day because he was, he's a, he's a uh, physicist at a very large school and he was on the team that broke the atom into quarks and all those things. I go, so what do we, what do we prove? He goes, that's for somebody else to figure out. We just broke it. You know, we don't know what's going on with some of these things. We look at some of these things and say, God holds, all the, holds everything together. And he says, literally, he holds the whole world together. You know, I'm glad that God does not get forgetful. Now, I've gone in places thinking I was going to go get something and forgot what I was going to go in to get. I'm glad that God's not forgetful. Because if he just forgot about this earth for just a moment, or this universe for just a moment, it, could, it would explode. Because he wouldn't, wasn't holding it together. God has the details of your life in, in his hands. Why can he say that all things work together for good for those who love him, or love him and are called according to his purpose? Because he knows all the details of our life. This is where our peace comes from in the long run. God knows all the details of my life and everybody else's life and from beginning of time to the end of time. He already knows and he has a plan in store because he cares about details. He is a detail-driven individual. 
and he knows all the details. So that when we have somebody come up and say, well, what, what about this? What about that? What, you know, I love those kind of questions. I love talking about, to the, about these things because God gives us answers if we use his word first. When we abandon his word, then we're stuck with a lot of questions. Aristotle and Socrates, because they did not know God's word, were stuck with a lot of questions they did not know the answers to and came to fertility out of it. They did not understand anything. I have met lots of people who pride themselves on studying philosophy. And all they do when they get done with philosophy is have more questions than answers. Because they never go to the one who has answers that fit their questions. And all they do is go, well, what, what if, what if, what if? You know, you can what if yourself into total fear. This is what's happening even in our day and age with the COVID. You know, what if? What if this happens? What if this happens? What if this happens? Are we trusting in God? Are we saying, God, you've got a plan and I'm going to sit in your peace? I'm going to sit with you protecting. Does that mean we don't plan for the future? No, we, not, we better plan for the future. I work in a place that we always have to, are taught be aware of where all the escape routes are, where, what, who's around you, where your doors are, where, where, your, where your help is at, because I work with the prisoners, and they're not always nice guys. Now, for the most part, they're not bad, generally. <laughs> but we are to be aware. God is not asking us to be oblivious of what's going on. He says, make plans, be ready. He's a detailed God, but our details can't be such that we forget him. Many times I will make a plan, I will have my thoughts, and God will say, no, we're doing something else. It happens many times when I get ready to teach a Bible study. I have planned to teach something, and I know what I'm going to teach, and all of a sudden God says, no, we're going to teach something else today. And we need to be ready. When God says no to your plans, you say, okay, God, where am I, what am I doing? I am sure that Noah's plan was not to build an ark originally. You know, he had whatever he was planning to do on his day-to-day -day basis, and yet God says, today I have a new job for you. Are we willing to let God tell us that he has new plans for our day? Now, usually God doesn't give any of us a 120-year assignment. Uh, Noah had a long, long assignment for him. <laughs> yeah, our assignments are usually very short. But are we willing to listen and turn our life over to him and say, God, I want what you want. He opens the, once he's in here, he opens up the covering, the door. And he looks out and he sees the ground. And even when he does this, in the 10th month, he opens up the door and he still does not go out of the ark until God tells him to go out. How many times do we get ahead of God because we're going to do something we want to do? I've done it lots of times. God, I'm, I'm all set. I'm going to do something. It's going to be good. God, I know you'd like this. I'm going to be serving you. And God hasn't told me to go. I haven't bothered to ask God if he wants me to go. <laughs> Noah opens up the door and sees the land and yet does not go out until God 
tells him to go out. Why did God make him wait another two months looking at what was out there? I don't know. doesn't tell us. doesn't tell us. Was the ground ready? Was there enough vegetation? Probably not. So God says, stay. It is hard when we get ahead of God and we do things our way. And sometimes it is trying to do things our way and we think it's going to serve God. Cain comes in with an offering, not of, not of uh, the blood, and he brings the best of his works, and God says, no, I don't accept it. But God, I'm giving you a sacrifice. And God says, no. Jeroboam in, in 1 Kings was offering sacrifices, and he, reaches, you know, and he gets criticized. Now he's worshiping the wrong God, but he gets criticized. He reaches out and to, to accuse the, the priest, and his arm is dried up. Later on, the good king is going to try to go into the temple and offer sacrifices, and he's going to be struck with leprosy. Good things. Serve God. I'm going to give God offerings, but it wasn't his job to do, and God says, no. We need to be very careful that we don't get ahead of God in our service. And we want to be careful that we don't not do something that God tells us to do when he tells us to. We have a very interesting life. We do what we're told. If he is our master, he has the right to instruct us on what to do. Unfortunately, many Christians don't treat him as if he is master. They don't listen to God. They're not listening. They're not looking to obey God. And our goal in life is to serve the master, to serve him. We are his servants. That is why he is called Lord and Master. He is Savior. And that's the good side. We need a Savior. We need somebody to save us from destruction from hell. But how do we show that? We serve him. James told the people, show me your faith by, by uh, I will show you my faith by my works, and you show me your faith without your works. He wasn't saying they did not have faith. He was saying, you can't show me your faith. How, and this is something that we have to struggle with. If we do not have God working in our life, we also have to look at ourselves and say, God, am I yours? Do I know you? Am I your child? If you're his child, you should have works. Not works that you generate, but works that he generates out of you. And this is important. As we walk with God, we will become more like him. And the more we become like him, the more we will work for him. We will show love. We will show kindness. We will show mercy. We will serve those who need served. Jesus said that if you want to be first in the kingdom, you are the servant of all. He came to be servant to the world. And, you know, we may think that we've got a lot of pride. We're too, we're too prideful to serve, serve people. The God of the universe came and became man and served humanity, which he created. He had every right to say, okay, all of you get off your butts, get over here and worship me and do what I tell you to do because I'm God. But that is not how he came. He came to be an example to us of how we are to minister to others. He went around ministering. He went around helping others. He went around showing love and kindness too often as Christians 
we get this idea that somehow we're better than everybody else and don't have to help certain people because they're just losers. You know, but unfortunately, if we think about it, before Jesus came to in our, in our life, we were all losers. Losers on the way to hell. Because we thought that our righteousness was going to do something for us. We thought our goodness was going to do it. And because we couldn't be righteous enough, we got bad enough. <laughs> trying to feel comfortable, trying to feel peace. The peace that God gives us is what we're seeking for before we get saved that we can never find because we can't earn that peace. We surrender our life and God gives us peace. The biggest part of most people's testimonies is when they accept Jesus Christ and all of a sudden the load of sin is taken off of them and they feel peace. I was only 10 years old when I got saved, but I felt the peace of God come upon me. And hopefully each one of you felt that peace of God coming upon you when you repented of your sins and asked Jesus to come into your life. That peace, when your sin is lifted off and you know that you are a new creation forgiven by God and his child. You may not know all of that when it happens, but you grow into it. It is a beautiful thing that God loves us. And he loves us so much that he died for us. And he wants to give us direction that is good. He is a good master. He is never going to tell us to do something that is ultimately going to hurt us. Now we may feel pain, we may have trials, we may have tribulations. We may even have to face martyrdom. But even in all of that, God is in control and ultimately because our eyes are on him and in heaven, whatever we go through on, on this world is nothing. And we need to keep our eyes on, focused on heaven. God has a plan for us, and that might mean to meet him, in the, meet him sooner than we might want to. You know, and we're coming to times where trials are going to come. You know, this world is getting hard for Christians. And it's going to get harder for Christians without a revival. And we need to have our lives ready and our hearts ready for when God sends trials into our life. You know, God did not come and say, well, I'm going to make everything just hunky-dory for you. You're going to be living in a rose garden and, and lots of peaceful things, nothing bad ever happening to you. Jesus had trials the entire time of his life. He had people trying to kill him, trying to trick him, trying to hurt him, his entire ministry. And even when he was born, they tried to kill him. We can expect no less. Are we ready? Are we in God's word? Are we into this, his spirit? Are we hiding in him and saying, God, I am ready for whatever you bring my way? Now, I'm going to tell you right now, as soon as you start thinking that way, he's going to bring trials into your life to see if you're ready. Some of them will start really small. If you're at the very, if you're at a kindergarten level of God, your, your problems are not going to be that hard compared to somebody else's. But you know that uh, kindergartner taking a kindergarten test, that's a hard test. You know, so if you're just starting with God, you're going to get nice, what I would look at and say, well, you got nice, easy tests. They're not easy for you. you know, uh, and the more you walk with God, the harder your test is going to get. And sometimes you look at some people and go, wow, how did they ever go through that test? Because God has developed them over those years. He has worked with them to get to the place where they are ready to accept. 
And the good news is when you're walking with God, he prepares you for the test that you're doing. And if you've studied, if you remember back when you were in school or at work and they gave you a test, if you had studied for that test and you were ready for that test, you didn't worry about the test. You just answered the questions. You, fell through, you, you sailed through it. But if you hadn't studied and you're walking into that test, you're usually in a panic. God is saying, I'm giving you prepared. I'm teaching you. What we read in the scriptures, he will then test us to see if we're paying attention to. What, what we hear in messages, he will then say, are you paying attention? Are you going to grow? And when we've been paying attention and we're studied and we're meditated on his word, the tests are pretty easy to get through because we just go, oh, okay, God, yeah, this is what you've been teaching me. I'm going to obey. If you're not meditating on the scriptures, you're not looking to learn, you go through those tests and all of a sudden it's like my whole world just got rocked and turned upside down and, and I'm having trouble. How do we get through these tests? We hide in Jesus. We hide in God. We let him put on his armor. He changes our thought processes. He changes the way we think. And then when we're in the middle of a problem, we go through it and go, wow, that didn't seem that bad. And people are going, how did you make it through that? That was, that was really a rough time. And you're looking at them and going, what are you talking about? <laughs> I've done that many times in my life. And I've had, I've had problems that turned me upside down, shook me, shook me through, threw me aside. And I've had others where I've come through and somebody goes, well, that was really hard. How'd you go through it? And I'm going, what are you talking about? Hopefully you know what that means when you go through things with God and you look at it and say, wow, everybody's saying I went through a lot of hard things. I don't see it. Because God was the one that took the storm. You were hidden in God and he took the storm. We need that place. We need that place. We need to be patient with God and say, God, I'm going to wait for you to tell me to do something. And then when he tells you to do something, your waiting's over. Get up and do it. You know, I've been both sides of that coin, <laughs> way ahead of God, and God's saying, stop. And then I've been, when I stopped one time, God said, okay, now it's time to get up and go. And I'm going, God, I'm really having fun just laying around doing nothing. And God says, no, get back to get back to work we need to be ready to listen if he says wait we wait if he says go we go and we need to be able to hear his voice and do so I'm going to tell you he's going to tell you more go more often than he's going to tell you to wait because I've heard lots of people say well I'm just waiting for God to tell me to go I go well lots of people have told you you should be doing something you might you might be wanting to listen to God uh, but no you know, we need to be ready to listen and go. And I think it's probably better for us to step out ahead of him a little bit than to sit down and not do what he says because he'll slow us down. He'll, he'll tell us to restart. He will work with us. But we, you know, we need to learn to hear his voice. How do we do that? We learn, we just start listening. Now, we have it kind of easy these days on phones because we have little boxes that tell us who's calling <laughs> you know on the phones but this group especially is old enough to remember when you had to pick up the phone and say hello and if it was somebody you knew you knew who you were t they did not have to say hi this is Ralph you know, they just started talking to you and you knew who it was because you talked to them a lot if you are talking with God a lot and he's talking with you a lot you're going to learn to hear his voice and be obedient to his voice. 
And it may take a while. When you're still starting out, you may have a lot of trouble with that. You know, and I've shared, you know, I've always been amazed at mothers. They hear their baby crying in the other room, you know, around church and everything. They'd be in the nursery and the mothers would, the baby would cry and the mothers would, all the mother's ears would perk up and only one would get up. You know, and, and if it wasn't the right cry, the mother probably wouldn't even get up because they knew their child's voice and most of them knew by the cry that the child was making what was wrong. You know, oh, this, my child's hungry. I better go back there and take care of it. Or my child's really hurt. Or, ah, they're just upset. I'll, le I'll leave them alone for a little bit. We need to know God's voice that way. That we hear and know what he's telling us to do. Will we hear actual voices in our head? Not usually. But there's times when I know what God is telling me to do. And I know that he said it. And be obedient. Now, I've had to learn the hard way. You know, when you walk with him for 50 years, you get to know his voice a little bit if you're paying attention. And I've went through lots and lots of years where I didn't listen to his voice and I had to suffer and, and go through lots of trials. I've had years where I argued with God and tried to do things my way, knowing that it was my way and not his way, and had to, had to learn. But learn to hear his voice. Learn to respond. Learn early in your Christian walk. Nothing's worse than having to wait 40 years to learn to, to listen to God. You know, learn early to hear his voice and be obedient. It's a lot easier on you to be obedient to God than to not. And just learn. Noah waits for two months before he gets out of the boat, looking at what looks like the promised land. And it's going to be the promised land when he gets, gets told to go there. But he's told to wait. And he waited for God to say, go. And when God said to go, he went. And we'll look at, once he went out, the first thing he did, and we'll, that'll be two weeks from now when we talk about it, the first thing he went when he went out was he built an altar to God, and God said, it's sweet to smell somebody honoring him. And that's when he was given a, his promise and all of that, that would never flood the world again. You know, God loves our obedience. It's not getting us into heaven by being obedient, but God loves when we are obedient and serving him. And we're not doing it to get him to love us because he already loves us. We're not getting it to get into heaven because that came through Jesus. We're just saying, God, I want to serve you. And this is a beautiful thing when we serve God. And when you walk with God and you're walking in what he's telling, telling you to do, it is wonderful to see how your life impacts others by being obedient. And sometimes we may not see how our life has touched others until we get to heaven and God shows us all these people were looking at you. Be aware that if you tell people you're a Christian, there are people looking at you to say, do you live a life of a Christian? It's important for us to know that people are watching you. you know, and I think people, well, I don't think anybody's watching me. I'm going, well, let's just ask God to have somebody tell you about how much they're watching you. And usually the ones you hear that from aren't living for God in the first place. You know, they're not, they're not living for God, so nobody's even really watching them, probably not watching them, because God doesn't want them being watched because of their lifestyle. But you start telling people you're a Christian, and people are going to look and say, is this person real? Do they truly love God? 
And our lifestyle should be more and more matching that lifestyle that we're telling people we are. Because people will look at you. You tell people you're a Christian and you get as grumpy as they do about bad things and you're stealing from people and lying to people. They're going to go, well, you're just another hypocrite. I don't, want to know, I don't want to know that God. But if you're telling people you're a Christian and you've got a smile on your face more often than not, you're, you're generally an honest person, your word is your bond, you go out and you say you're going to do something, you do it, and you love people, and they look at you and say, well, that is what I think a Christian should be like. I, I think I might want what they have. One of the greatest things that I keep getting asked on all the time is, why do you smile all the time? Now, I don't think that I smile all the time, but apparently I smile more than the average person, and, they, and people are always asking why. You know what? But I love that question because I now get to tell them about God, the God who gives me a peace that passes understanding, that is in control of everything and allows me to be content and be able to share with them about God. And you know what? They asked for it. They may not like the answer, <laughs> But they asked for the answer that they get. They don't, they don't really want it to be God in most cases. But if they get enough of the people telling them that God is the, the reason that they are what they like, it starts to get into their mind and they get them to change. Very important that we are witnesses even when we don't know that we're witnesses. Sometimes we know we're witnesses because we open our mouth and we share and we testify, and hopefully we all do that frequently. But we are also witnesses just by our life. Not doing the things that the world would do. Not act, reacting the way the world re would react. And hopefully you've grown enough in Christ that you don't react the way the world reacts. You know, uh, because it is important. When somebody does you wrong, or is your first thought to get back, back at them? Or is your first thought, is God... They're in your hands. Now, I love putting people in God's hands. Because God's going to get them better than I could have anyway, and his goal is to get them saved. My goal would be to hurt them. His goal is to bring them to him. That may involve hurting them. But his goal is to bring them into his family, not to hurt them. When I've been hurt, my, my goal, if I let myself run, is to hurt them. Physically, mentally, Financially, whatever way, my goal would be to hurt them. And God is changing that goal of mine to love them. I oftentimes say, oh, God, they're yours. You, you deal with them. Yeah. Is that easy to do? No. But is it the right thing to do? God said, vengeance is mine. I will repay. You hurt one of God's children. God will defend his children. We need to get to that in our mind. If we're God's child and somebody hurts us, our daddy is going to take care of them. You know, in our day and age, your daddy can't go take, can't defend his kids anymore. But I, I'm old enough to remember when daddy could go out and uh, defend his kids from the bully. Grab that bully by the scruff of the neck and take him over to his dad's house. And, you know, and most of us are old enough to remember where you get the spanking where it happened and you'd get the spanking from your own parents when you got there. You know, there wouldn't be, oh, they had no right to do that. It's like you got two spankings. You know, now, is that the right thing? I don't know, but I remember those days. <laughs> you know, for what they were worth, there was, there was consequences for doing wrong. We serve a God who is our Father who will take care of us. And he's, he's owner of the world. He can do what he wants. <laughs> and he will take care of us. Trust in God and let him be your defense. 
Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love and care for us and all of the details that you put in, Lord, that you give us your word that has so many details in it and that every word in Scripture is important and there for a reason. Lord, help us to understand that and see that at all times. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening, friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please, today, make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com. Or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.